Father, as we come into your word, we pray that your spirit would be the one who takes the <clears throat> thoughts, the reflections that I have to offer here, and gives it some sense and some sense of penetration. Lord, we can hear words and they can bounce off of us. We can just say, well, this is fine. I've got some other things to think about today. But Lord, could you draw our hearts together to see you, to have eyes to see you, to have ears to hear, have hearts that will respond, even as we will look at that is a problem in that it doesn't always happen. So here we are, your people, you are our God, and we in, 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 uh, invoke or delight in your presence, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts 28. It's interesting, I was given the assignment to take everything except the last couple of verses, so there's still a little bit of Acts that will be left for next week, and I, I um, cheer you on for that. And we're going to talk about today Paul reaching Rome, and uh, the question I want to ask, and just to have this as the hovering question, what does it mean to love God with a whole heart? To love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all our soul, all, our, all of our strength. What does that mean? What does that look like? And I think a lot of us will hear those words and just say, yeah, those are religion words. Those are, you know, for church now let's get on with the real world. Let's get on with real life. And I think what we find is that until that combination of loving God with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength comes into our lives, we haven't quite grasped what we've been grasped for as we have become Christians. Those of us who aren't Christians can look on and say, what does Christianity look like? Well, it looks like this, not like you know, little points of connection that go on on Sunday and then not much for the rest of the week. So Paul is the great illustration of what it looks like to love God. And here's another concern that I have. A lot of people hear the word love and they say, oh, syrup on pancakes. I know what love is. It's the sweetie stuff you put on what you're really going to eat. And some people like more syrup, some people like less. Well, that's not what I mean by love. Okay, just to make that clear. Love is Jesus dying on the cross. Uh, that, that was sweaty, that was grimy, that was bloody, that was hard, that was steel going through flesh, okay? Love is a really profound word. And as we look at Paul wrapping up in the end of this uh, chapter 28 in Acts, we're, we're, it, it, it's intriguing because it has ups and downs in it. And I don't know about you all, but I have ups and downs in life. Some days are good and some days, well, let's wish we could do a replay. But Paul certainly has his ups and downs in life, and that's part of what it is to love God. It's to recognize love is not great circumstances, and lack of love is, well, God doesn't love me anymore because things aren't going well. See, that's the wobbly kind of Christianity that some of us may have in mind, but that is just the defective version. So let's look at Paul, who has ups and downs. I think of this as yo-yo life. It's, you know, I don't know if yo-yos are still around, but, you know, you could do the yo-yos ups and downs. Well, Paul has lived a yo-yo life, and I'm going to point to that a little bit as we go forward here. So, Paul in the book of Acts. It's remarkable, as he has God's hand at work in his life through the many signs and the indications of God's care for him, despite some really difficult circumstances. For instance, back in chapter 14, I'm going to start the review that uh, I guess you're going to have some reviewing in Acts next week. And I, hope, I understand there's one person that's agreed to come up. I think there need to be four of you. 
maybe five. Okay, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just doing this on behalf of the pastor who cannot be so heavy-handed as someone who's coming in as more of a guest. Come on, folks, get on with it. Come and talk about the book of Acts and just share. Let it pour through you and talk about, I don't know, if you've ever been stoned near to the end of your life, almost to death. Well, that's what Paul went through in Lystra. Now, why would you stick your neck out to possibly be stoned to death? It's because of the love of Christ. And so Paul would talk about that as he does in 2 Corinthians, for it's the love of Christ that compels me to do what I'm doing. And so there he was in Lystra. And so he gets up after they think he's dead, dusts himself off, and goes back into the town and then continues doing ministry the next day. That's Paul. He doesn't let the circumstances be a problem. He doesn't let the stones of life dent him. We find that in uh, chapter 16, he had a vision to do ministry. He had a plan for ministry. He's going to go back to Turkey. It was called Asia Minor in those days. And he's ready to head up to northern Turkey, up near the Black Sea. And uh, he gets the Spirit of God saying, no, you're not going that way. You're going to go to Europe, head across the straits there, and you are now going to be working in Macedonia, and then we'll have you go to Greece, and we'll have you go to other places. And so he had his life turned in a new direction. The point I want to make is that God was guiding him through the Holy Spirit. And so it was very immediate, very, very clear, and, and uh, strongly guided. But then we also have the occasion when uh, the Holy Spirit through, spoke through Agabus back in uh, chapter 21, and Paul has collected uh, some funds, and he doesn't touch the money himself, but he's taking people from places like Macedonia, from Corinth, from Ephesus, and he's taking these team of people, all of whom are carrying the cash, the money, he, he won't touch it, and they will carry it and give it as a gift to the people who are just destitute and desperate in Jerusalem. And his point is, I want to make sure that Jews and Gentiles, the the people who are non-Jews, Gentiles, who are now Christians are united in their Christianity and that the union of that faith and devotion to each other comes through Jesus Christ, even though culturally they're miles apart. And by training and background, they've always been kind of in opposition to each other. Paul says the opposition is now finished. Let's come together. And Agabus says, well, I hate to tell you this, but the Spirit of God is telling me you are going to be tied up in knots. And he ties, uses some of his clothing to tie himself up and say, this is what's going to happen to you. And Paul says, you, you're just making life hard for me. That's fine. Even if I die, which he does in fact die eventually. This, that leads to his eventual death his trial, and all the rest. He says, that's fine. I'm ready to die for the sake of the people there who need to be assured that the Jews and Gentiles are united as one in Christ Jesus. So do you see, the ups and downs, as we would see it, are not viewed by him as ups and downs as much as, oh, it's just the climbing through the neighborhood, crawling through the circumstances to get to the other side because I know the future is that we're all going to be united in Christ for the rest of eternity. So what Paul illustrates is that he's living with Christ in him, the hope of glory, even though Christ is now in heaven. So he views himself as seated in Christ in the heavenly places, what he says in Ephesians, 
even though physically he's here on earth, and on earth he's got the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and the sons of disobedience making life hard for him. And he goes, well, I know greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. It's not, not a big deal. I can be crucified. That's fine. I'm crucified with Christ anyway. Nevertheless, I live. I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. So that's that back and forth, the yo-yo effect, looking at circumstances and looking at Christ, looking at the future versus looking at the present and saying, this life is not my home. And to love God means you've got to turn away from treating this world as home. Instead, no, I'm just passing through. And I'll do well in this world as much as I can do to live for Christ. And so that's the kind of thing we see Paul offering us in this section we'll look at today. We'll find, too, another piece of this up and down life is the wild boat ride. You know, they get in the boat. They think they're going to sail. You know, Paul is a prisoner. He's got the, um, I don't know, colonel, what, he, what he, centurion they call him who's in charge of him, and he's now headed to Rome. We've just, the last couple of chapters, headed to Rome for his trial before Caesar. Well, it's a trial for his life. He may not survive this thing. And in the boat, it gets out of control, and Paul is giving advice, and they say, you don't, you're not a sailor. Why should we be listening to you? But in the end, Paul's advice keeps being sound because Paul has God on his side. So we find in chapter 27, for verse 23, it says, For this very night there stood before me, he's talking now to the group people on the boat who are afraid of a shipwreck and feeling like, oh my goodness, life is ended or life is ending. This very night, he says to them, before me, an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship, he said to me, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Well, there's the plan. You, you've got to get to Caesar. Caesar, but he doesn't add, in a trial for my life. Do you catch the, how perspective changes depending on how big God is? And that's what faith is. That's what it is to love God who loves us. And we recognize that the love of God is such that all things work together for good to those that love him and who are called according to his purpose. And Paul is conscious of that. And so he says, well, uh, do not be afraid, Paul, the angel says. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So he comes to the whole crew. He says, you're fine. You're going to have to get wet. Gonna, the boat's going to you know, crash, it's going to fall apart, you're going to have to grab pieces of wood, whatever it's going to be, but you're all going to live through it. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. Do you catch the ups and downs? Do you see that circumstances can feel like they're out of control? And some of you know what that's like. You know what it's like. Well, the question is, do you live by faith? Do you know that the love of God is there for you? if you are in relationship with him. And the way to enjoy the circumstances of life, even if they're difficult, is to say, but I have God on my side, and I know he's at work. So Paul certainly comes in with that flavor, that perspective, as he comes into the final section here, chapter 28. 
And so we pick it up here, the ups and downs of Paul, of having faith in God. And that was, that was what he told the people in the boat, have faith in God. So he wants to promote that as a theme. So that's a theme that we'll promote here. Love God, have faith in God. So what are the ups and downs? Let's pick it up. And I'm going to read just the first section of the scripture, 1 through 10, and talk about that. And we'll work through it in sections. It's kind of a travelogue that we have here in front of us for this chapter. Verse uh, 1, 28, 1. After we were brought safely through, they managed to land on, on the shore. Everyone was safe. Uh, we learned that the island was called Malta. They had no idea where they were. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. Isn't that nice? So let's just put that in the positive column. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out from the heat because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Let's put that in the negative column. <laughs> Good circumstances, bad circumstances. And the point I want to make is Paul doesn't live by circumstances. In fact, what does he do? He shakes the snake off. When the native people saw the creature hanging on his hand, they said to one another, Whoa, this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea, justice. Providence has not allowed him to live. He, however, just shook the creature off into the fire, suffered no harm, and they were waiting for him to swell up, suddenly fall over dead. But when they had waited for a long time and saw no, no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said, he must be a god. Whew. Well, again, notice the pluses and minuses here, the columns, if you have that in mind. The circumstances. Paul is not driven by circumstances, even though he's captured by the circumstances. He goes on. We go on. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publis, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Uh, it happened that his father, uh, the father of Publius, lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases came, also came and were cured. And they also honored, honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on uh, board whatever we needed loaded up the ship with all the supplies they needed. So do you see the plus and minus column here, the circumstantial pluses and minuses? Publius, your, your dad's not doing well. Come on, I'm good at healing. Let me heal him. By God's grace, he prays for him, he's healed. Well, that's exciting, man. I'd love to have someone like Paul next door, you know. Hey, I've got an issue. Could you please put your hand on me and heal me? That's the sort of strength and power that Paul had working through him. And he was confident of that. He was sure of that. But why is he going to jail and eventually having his head chopped off? If God has that kind of power to take care of him and work through him. Has he ever thought about that? The pluses and minuses of the Bible? Why is it that James and uh, John were imprisoned early on in Acts? And one is killed, and the other, or Peter, and the other one survives, gets out, has a, doors open up, and the angel leads them right out of the prison. Why does God do that? If God is good, why doesn't he heal us every single time, and none of us will ever die? 
Duh. It's just not the way it's going to work. But what he does do is says, yes, I am in control of life, and I could heal you, all of you, all the time, and have you live in this, this life short of heaven for eternity, but that's not really what you want to have. There's a better life ahead. And so what we do is we puzzle over what is it that God has in mind for us. And to live by faith is to say he loves me, and I know he works everything together for good to those who love him are called according to his purpose. And so Paul is able to pray for these people, and pretty soon there's a line of people. Have you ever watched anything in The Chosen, the long lines of people coming to Jesus? Well, that's what was going on with Paul too. The healer was out with the shingle was out, healing in process. Come with whatever your concerns are. But still with that, guess what? Paul is going to get on the ship and let's see how that goes forward. So let's go on to the next section. What I want to do is show you a map here. Let's put that up here. And we'll show you where Malta is, down there, the little island south of Sicily. And if you go up uh, to Sicily, they're going to arrive. We'll read the section here in a moment of what the locations are. And we, we have that early port and then another port just at the very toe, as we call it, of Italy. And then he goes farther up to a port, uh, Puteoli, which is up there a little ways. And from Puteoli, they hike the rest of the way to Rome. So that's, that's the travel arrangement. And it just gives you a little bit of a picture. In terms of distance, from Malta to Rome is 400 miles. So it's a long stretch. It's not, it's going across the state of Oregon well into Idaho or past Idaho, you know, so it's some coverage to be made here. So if you put yourself into his sandals, it helps to understand what it is to live by faith. It's walking, talking, breathing, meals, meeting people. What's the next day going to hold? You just don't know. And circumstances are up and down. And that's what is the function of faith, to live with certainty that God works everything together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So we pick it up. Let me read this passage then. After three months, so they had to wait until the weather allowed for the winds to begin blowing in the Mediterranean in the direction they needed to have to get up to Italy. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, which is down in Egypt, uh, and it had been settled there in Malta for a time, with twin gods as a figurehead, putting in at Syracuse. We stayed there for three days. Syracuse is there in Sicily. It's the main port on the uh, east side of, uh, of Sicily. So they port there, probably do some getting rid of project products and picking up products. And uh, after a brief stay there, we uh, went on from there to uh, Regium, and uh, that happens to be uh, modern-day Cal uh, Calabria. And there they ported as well and spent uh, whatever time they needed to do to deal with cargo, cargo issues, probably picking up and letting off passengers. And then it goes on. Uh, we found uh, uh, then after one day a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. And there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, 
came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. Those are uh, kind of way stations, places to settle in and rest, about 40 miles and then 30-some miles south of Rome. So we know where these places are. So there's, a, there's this uh, main road that's the best road in all of Ro uh, the Roman Empire that is running up Italy. And so they have these way stations where you can catch your Mac McDonald's burgers or whatever you're going to get there. And so as they move uh, on up the way there, the word is out in Rome that they're coming. So we'll talk more about his connection with Rome. I want to comment, by the way, on Puteoli, just because I happen to be a traveler, and I have been in Puteoli, and that, is, that was fun. I had a chance to be in a teaching ministry, and for 20 weeks we had a, a Neapolitan in our group, Luca. Uh, and Luca was from Naples. And he wanted me to come and visit him in Naples. So I came and spent three days in Naples with Luca and his wife, Anna. And we had a sweet time. And one of the things we did there in Naples is go chase down a town near a mountain called Vesuvius. Have you ever heard of that town? Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Pompeii. And we went through the ruins of Pompeii. And you should do that sometime. One of the big ahas for me, I'm just, behave yourself, Ron, behave yourself. Don't tell the story. I'll tell the story anyway. When we were there in Pompeii, one of the things that really struck me was one of the ruins from the volcanic ash, if you don't know the story, Vesuvius blew up and covered like Mount St. Helens here. In that case, they covered the city of Pompeii with ash and fiery, flaming too hot to breathe, incendiary uh, ashes that came down there and killed all the people there. So you see the bodies of people. Actually, it's just the external shell that's been left by their bodies. And they fill that up with, with cast, with plaster. And you can still see what the posture of the bodies would have been as they died in the tremendous 1,800-degree temperatures of the heat that just came swamping down on them. One of the things that I got to see there that really caught my attention is what we call a triclinium. What's a triclinium? It's what Jesus had when he ate meals. So that picture, for instance, Jesus at Simeon's house, Simon's house for a meal. And it, it says, at his feet was a woman with tears weeping over him and washing his feet. And you go, what's she doing crawling under the table? Well, that's not the way it worked. A triclinium are, are couches, and it's in a kind of a uh, two couches, that is two couches with a table in the center and then a third, one, two, three, triclinium, a place for three platforms. And the platforms are loaded with cushions, and you would lay on the platform with your feet away from the center of the table. The center of the table would be where the servants would come in from the fourth side and put the food on the table. And then you'd all be eating from the table stuff, dipping stuff. And so, for instance, when Judas Iscariot was identified by Jesus, he says, I'm going to dip this bread into this uh, bowl, and I'm going to give it to the one that's going to betray me, which was, you know, Judas Iscariot. Well, that's they're able to watch that because their heads were all together and their feet were out. So in the case of Simeon, his feet would have been out at the far end of the triclinium. And so there's no difficulty for someone walking around the outside to do that kind of a thing. 
And that was so striking to me to actually see a true triclinium from the year. Guess when, guess when uh, this occurred, this uh, volcanic explosion? 79 A.D. When did Paul come through Puteoli? 61 A.D. We're talking not that far distant. And so the people, the seven people that Paul met with, undoubtedly some among them would have seen the explosion within a couple of decades later of Vesuvius. Because Puteoli is across the harbor from, of Naples from Vesuvius. So there at the harbor of Puteoli, where I was with Luca, we could look and say, oh, that is really close by. We're talking about the harbor. One end of the harbor is Puteoli, and the other end of the harbor is where Vesuvius and Pompeii would have been. So when you get a chance to travel, all this Bible stuff really starts to come alive. And there's the actual church that says this is the church that celebrates the coming of the Apostle Paul on his way to Rome and the church that was established in, in operation in those days. So what we recognize is the Christian church is starting to spread, and there are believers there. Wherever you go, there are believers. There would have been believers in Pompeii. Okay? It all of a sudden becomes very, very lively. And uh, so he met there for seven days and then went on to Rome by way of these way stations that it mentions here. Now, I want to just comment on our theme of pluses and minuses, because he comes to Rome, and Paul thanked God and took courage on seeing these people that came out to meet him. Let's put that in the plus column. And when he came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him the minus column. He wasn't free. He was not a freeman. He was still facing trial before Caesar. And eventually, by tradition, we don't know this, there's no written record of it in the Bible, he was eventually beheaded or put to death by Nero. Okay, so his, his destiny was, in fact, death was coming. And it was his affiliation with the Romans who had him as a prisoner that was leading in that direction. So as we think about the ups and downs, we find out that Paul was still in a difficult time. After three days, he arrives in Rome, and after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And this is one of two meetings. We're going to see in verse 17, he has this first inaugural meeting. And then verse 23, they call together Jewish leadership from the area, or Christian leadership, perhaps some Gentiles, but it seems like it's mostly the Jews who were here, had come then and met with him for an all-day meeting. So that if we can kind of get the rhythm there, it's a brief meeting and then an all-day meeting yet to follow up. Uh, so the verse 23, let me just read then. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because they, there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. Do you hear the weight of what he's charged with? They want him to be put to death. And so that's the question. Will Caesar put him to death and satisfy the Jewish leaders? Or will he be acquitted? That's a dangling question. So to be chained to a guard 
is all about life and death issues. So he goes on. Because, but because of the Jews, Jews objected, uh, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I've asked to see you and speak to you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Once again, we come back to his being chained to a guard. And they said to him, we have received no letter from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you, but we desire to hear from you and what your views are for which... For with regard to this sect, and the word sect is the same kind of word, it's the word for heresy. So they're not necessarily speaking positively to him here. We've heard about you, and we want to hear more about you, you heretic. So we go on. And when they had, when the, they had appointed a day for him, they came into the lodging in greater number in greater numbers, and from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, and other, but others disbelieved. And after disagreeing among themselves, they departed. After Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, uh, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. I'm going to leave, leave alone verses 30 and 31, because that's for next week. But you catch all of this dynamic two-day events, the first day and then now the full day, and Paul has this back and forth with them. And there's some context I would like to add to this, just because that's who I am. I'm an old history teacher, and you've, you've been stuck with me up on the pulpit, so here we go. The historian in me has to come out. The reality of this situation of Paul finding out that they have no charge against him, and as if it's all placid, and it's fine, it's nice to have you here, we have no idea of anything about you, well, they're kind of, kind of, kind of not telling the whole story. What's the whole story? The answer is back in chapter 18 of Acts. What happened in chapter 18 of Acts? Chapter 2, 18-2, we have Paul meeting with Priscilla and Aquila. Where were they from? Rome. Where were they meeting with Paul? In Corinth. Why were they in Corinth? Because they had been kicked out of Rome by the emperor, Claudius. And Claudius had kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And so what are we talking about as we read this text? This is in 61. Claudius had kicked them out of Rome in 54, sorry, 49 or 50. We're not sure a few years earlier, and when he kicks them out, he says, you're out of here, don't take your furniture, just take whatever you've got in your pocket, and you're gone. And they leave their homes behind, they leave their 
gear behind. They leave their computers. I don't know what they had then. They leave everything that was a treasure to them. All that had to be left behind what they couldn't carry or take in a little cart maybe. And so they're, they're, they're kicked out. Why? Well, we don't know from the Bible, but we do know from historical sources that there's a Roman official who writes to another Roman official and he says, well, you know, Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome because of their fighting over a figure named Crestus. I wonder who that was. And because of the tensions among the Jews over this Crestus, they all got kicked out of Rome. Now that's hovering in the background as Paul comes into town representing Christus. And I think they all have good memories of what happened to them under Claudius a little over a decade earlier. And they are not going to do any contentious fighting, especially when you've got Roman figures sitting there watching, ready to report to the authorities. Oh, everything's fine. We're sure you're fine. We've heard about your heresy, uh, but there's, there's no report other than, well, no doubt they have news about Paul. And what we find is Paul is ready to try and share the gospel with a probably hostile audience, that not many of these people are coming there to say, bless you, it's good to have you here. Some who did come and meet with him are indeed believers, but most of the people in that meeting are there to hear out what he has to say and whether they want to have any affiliation with him, and some do believe. And what is the basis for those who do believe? Did you catch that? He told them about Jesus, and he used the Old Testament content to talk about Jesus. And in that, he gives his testimony from the Law of Moses and from the prophets, which is exactly what Jesus does in Luke 24 after he's raised from the dead. Go to Luke 24, and you'll find that on the road to Emmaus, these two bumpkins are walking along saying, oh, we were really sad because we thought we had the Messiah on our hands, and it just turned out he got killed, and I, we don't know what to do with that. And Jesus, they don't recognize him, starts to talk to them and says, oh, you foolish ones, do you not get it? And he starts to tell everything about himself, that is the Christ, everything from the Old Testament up to that time in history. And they go, wow. And then they have a meal, break bread, and all of a sudden, that breaking of bread, they go, oh, you're Jesus. And he says, that's right, see you later. And he's gone. Well, then they go hustling back to Jerusalem to say, we met Jesus, we saw Jesus, we talked to Jesus. This is the day of the resurrection. Uh, this is the third day. This is just after the resurrection. That's the first talk that Jesus gives after he's raised from the dead. And what does he do? He surveys the entire Old Testament, which means reading the Bible is a really good thing because it's all about Jesus. Once you get the rhythm, once you know what you're looking for, okay? So they went back to Jerusalem, and who shows up in the room? Jesus. And what does he do? He teaches them all the things about himself from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, once again. So two surveys in Luke 24 about himself from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament. And I do not want to hear from any of you say, oh, I like the New Testament, the Old Testament. Oh, I'm, ugh, ah, I don't like that. Because that means you're dismissing things about Jesus that are all the way through the Old Testament. And so that's what Paul offers them in the course of this long day. And some people go, Oh, my goodness, this all fits together. 
and they came to believe. But a lot of them apparently didn't believe. And so here's what Paul does with his summary, which is kind of a downbeat summary. So positives, some believe. Negatives, not everyone. And so for those who didn't believe, he goes back to Isaiah chapter 6. And that's the long quotation. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. That's a passage that's used in Romans 9. It's used in other places, which is sort of a having eyes yet you won't hear or see, as if people somehow have their eyes blinded and their ears plugged and it's somehow in, there's an incapacity. Well, that's not really what that passage is about. Let me go back to Isaiah and just give a brief commentary on that. Isaiah starts, by the way, with chapter 1. I mentioned chapter 6. Let's start with chapter 1. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. An ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Going on down a little farther in verse 4. For they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Oh, verse 18 is a great verse. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be made like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Oh, how the faithful city, verse 21, has become a prostitute. Full, she was full of justice no longer. It goes on and talks uh, negatively about the difficulty of this people who are just resisting, turning their backs on God, even though God had come, come with his love and disclosed himself. He says, don't be looking to humans as your leaders. Look to God. And we pick it up in verse uh, chapter 5, verse 20. What are those who call evil good and good evil? who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It sounds a little bit like some of what's going on in our culture today. Things getting turned upside down, okay? Woe to those who do those things. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and so on. For they have rejected, down in verse 24, the law of God, the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Now we get to chapter 6. And he says, Isaiah, I've got a job for you. These people, though your sins are like scarlet, I can make them as white as snow. They have despised my words, and they have preferred darkness to light, falsity for truth. And here's what I want you to do. Go bake them in their unbelief. That's your job. Go preach. And he goes on and he says, what we have is, I saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, his robes overflowing. And Isaiah says, woe is me. I'm lost, a man of unclean lips. And the Lord says, no, that's, I've taken care of your guilt. It's taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And then he goes on and he said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And he says, okay, go and speak to these people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of these people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn to be saved. You know what that is? That's the same thing that Paul is saying here. 
You've been given truth and truth and truth and truth, and you've got, no, 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 we do not want the truth. Go to hell, God. And God said, we'll talk about that. And I'm not the one that's going to be in hell, I promise you. And so what Paul is doing is he's simply going to say, okay, I'm going to do the kind of ministry that will bake in place your unbelief. But some believe. And they recognize it's not circumstances that make for faith. It's loving God and recognizing that he works everything together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Don't let circumstances get in the way. God's still in charge, and he has a plan. So that's where we get to leave Paul. And so abruptly, oh, uh, what happens next? And the answer is, we'll come back next week. You'll find out a little bit more. But here's my little bit of a guess. I think maybe Luke, who has written the book of Luke, and he starts out, oh, Theophilus, I've gathered these things together. I want to tell you about them. And then the start of Acts, oh, Theophilus, this guy, Theophilus, lover of God is what it means. I think he won. I wonder if Luke doesn't have in mind another letter to Theophilus, but we never get to read it. But when you get to heaven, you'll get to come up to Paul and say, could you tell us the rest of the story? And the fact is, he is, in fact, put to death for his faith in Christ. It may be that he gets out of jail there's a rule, and we know of Roman law, We've, it's written, it's still available, that you can only be held for 18 months for a trial. And if you don't get the trial within that 18 months, then you're going to be let off the hook. Well, it's two years that he is waiting because uh, Nero has got some stuff going on. He, has, he kills his mother, he does some really bizarre stuff, and it puts off the trial for a long time. And it may be on that basis that Paul doesn't come to trial. But whatever is the case, he's later rearrested. You go to 2 Timothy and you hear that he's coming close to the end of being poured out. His life is going to end. But that's not the way the book of Acts ends. You've got to go to heaven to find out the rest of the story. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for Paul. We're so thankful for the certainty that it's not our circumstances that are the basis of faith. It's the certainty of your love expressed in Christ Jesus, who was crucified for our sake and who invites us to the cross to join in there. That we can have life and come out the other side and celebrate and share in the communion that we're now going to get to share with a certainty of eternal life. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.